This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. If you guys haven't known, we've grown our lineup of podcasts recently, uh, especially over like the last six months. And one of those podcasts is the Petro Nerds podcast hosted by Trisha Curtis and Ethan Bellamy. And they've been absolutely crushing it on the show. Uh, and so both of them come from the kind of like research and consulting side of the industry and are able to like dissect the micro and the macro trends and really break down kind of what's going on in the industry. Uh, so go check out their podcast. And in this episode, we finally get to sit down with Trisha. We've known her for quite some time. We've been working together for at least the last six months. Uh, we've been meeting her to get on the podcast. Finally, she came into town for the Evolve conference. And so we got to sit down with her and dive into how she ended up consulting, like some of the biggest players in the space, like various EMPs, the Pentagon, which is, I thought was really, really cool. Uh, and then even OPEC. Yes, like the actual OPEC, she's able to consult them as well. Uh, so really, really good episode. Hope you guys enjoy it. Before we get into the episode, April 24th, I want you to mark your calendars. We are hosting the inaugural Wildcatters block party down in historic Richmond, Texas. It's going to be outside Chuck, Chuck's house. Uh, we are locking down the street in front. We're going to have endless amounts of crawfish, cold beer, margaritas, white claws and trulies, if that's your thing. I know it's mine. Uh, we're going to have a cornhole tournament with a heavyweight belt that we're getting engraved for the winners. It's going to be really, really cool. And live music. Um, we're expecting probably around 300 people to show up. Uh, it's going to be a really good time. You can get tickets on our website, digitalblockaders.com. Just go to the events section. You'll find it in there. If you don't find it, reach out to one of us and we'll point you in the right direction. So let's get right into the episode. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Oily Guest Startups Podcast. Today, has this episode has been a long time coming. Uh, Trisha Curtis founder, CEO, Petro Nerds, also part of the Digital Wildcatters family, co-hosting the Petro Nerds podcast, where you guys take the micro and the macro and you put them in a bowl together and you come up with some insights. You and Ethan, yeah, you guys are such a dynamic <laughs> podcast. I don't want to say couple. That's I know you're going to Because you're not couple. Yeah. I'm trying to think of another word for that. Duo, dynamic duo. There we go. So it's, you've, been, you've been saying, hey, when are we going to get you on the podcast? Yeah. And we finally got you down to Houston. We've been convincing you, hopefully, to move here. This is my third time. The commitment that I have to you boys is pretty significant. I mean... I mean, who wants to live in Denver? Let's be honest. The weather's a little more mild. I mean, the summers are amazing, by the way. Um, we don't have the humidity, so my hair usually looks a little better in Denver. Uh, I would also like to point out that I'm all formally dressed and... You're all super casual. Usually, yeah, usually you're in jeans and boots and stuff, but we did some shooting for Evolve and... You saw a picture of Colin in a collared shirt, which is, it's like a Yeti Colin sighting. wore pants. Yeah, Colin wore pants. That was kind of a weird thing. Um, so you decided to, to dress up. Yeah. So you're a little outside of your element, right? Yeah. A little bit. Crushing it though. You know. Yeah. This is my normal element, obviously. Yeah. All right. So really quickly, what is, obviously not Petro Nerds the podcast, but what is <laughs> Petro Nerds your business? Uh, Petro Nerds, my business is a, I mean- to aptly describe it, I would still describe it as a boutique energy analytics and advising firm, but I mean, unconventional oil and gas is my baby. So it's like, it's, I cut my teeth on the Bakken, but also, I mean, everything that includes that. So I worked in DC and I, 
you know, started work on the Bakken before anybody was doing it in like 2010. And it was just up and coming. And I was out of grad school. So everything from the Bakken to then it propelled into everything unconventional oil and gas. So Petrons prides itself in our expertise in unconventional oil and gas production. And that sort of like granular micro intelligence of that has been extremely uh, favorable in terms of how we look at the global, how we look at the world um, and my sort of macro outlook on the world. And that uh, so most people in the U.S. know that we are good at you know, unconventional U.S. oil and gas and just understanding production, understanding the technical side and really like how operators think and what differentiates them and, you know, nerding out and spending time just listening to crashing through earnings calls and um, and looking at, you know, all the intricacies of how that all works together with the data. Uh, but then actually having a really well-focused and under, a good understanding of the macro and how that plays in both from a global perspective but also from a national perspective and what that means really for oil prices. And in a nutshell, that's that's what we take all the data components of that and help our clients and advise them on on whether they're in the weeds or whether they need a, a bigger pitch review. That was the humble version of the pitch. So Trisha is either consulting or has consulted OPEC, the Pentagon, I think the, the homies over in Bahrain, You've consulted a lot of people on really what energy policy, all that kind of stuff. And so I don't want to Trisha's head to get like too big, but she's pretty smart. She kind of knows what she's talking about. So where did this, this is actually good. Cause there's a lot of questions that I just genuinely don't know. We've known each other for like in person, I, I'd say probably like six months or so. So take me back, take me back. Uh, you're from Wyoming originally. Mm -hmm. right? Now you're in Denver trying to get you to move to Houston. What did you do prior to Petronerds? Let's just go back. Like, where did you start your your career? Yeah, actually, and this is why I want to do this podcast, because I listened to you and Colin, and I had known you both too, but I didn't know that, like, Colin's GPA was, you know, 1.1 whatever, you know, and I listened to you on that Mark's podcast, I think, and I love the backstory, and I didn't know that you, you know, were, I knew that you were former Marine, but I didn't know your whole story, which was awesome, and I was like, that personal element to the business stuff, I just thought was really cool before I got to know you. So the backstory on me uh, before, so yeah, grew up in Wyoming, the Wyoming-Colorado border, so I'd say mm -hmm. I'm third generation oil and gas, because I am. My my grandfather pumped oil wells in Wyoming, and my dad pumped oil wells in Wyoming, and I would say we probably all, all of us have hankered to actually run those assets that, rather than pump them, and so I am, I'm pretty well determined to do that someday as well, um, but I, I'm really proud on the third generation side, and I think my, my grandfather, neither of them are around, but would probably be pretty proud. My other grandfather was a wheat farmer. And so I straddled the Colorado-Wyoming border. We had a ranch in uh, outside of Bags, Wyoming, super tiny, like, town, population 400. And then just 40 miles south of that is Craig, Colorado. And my other grandfather was a wheat farmer. Our land connected his land. And, you know, so grew up heavily in commodities. Mm -hmm. It was a great way to grow up, though, like way out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, so tiny. So did you, like, graduate high school, like, out in the middle of nowhere? Yeah. What was like your graduating class? Like how many? My class, it was a four-way high school. It was actually pretty big. It was like really? two, to be fair, I mean, Moffat County High School, like it started out as 200 and by year end, it was, senior year was 150. So we lost like 50 kids before graduation. Man, my graduating uh, class was like 2000, I think. Holy crap. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was, it was small. I also gave the, uh, the speech at the high school graduation and I was you like. You gave the speech? Yep. Yeah. What did you give a speech on? I was like. Uh, it was funny because I wasn't involved in like, I wasn't involved in day-to-day -day stuff in, in high school and I was extremely late bloomer, um, as I know, shocking, but I, I just wasn't, 
you know, wasn't in sports and stuff. Not because I didn't want to be, but I just didn't enjoy. Like, I didn't enjoy mm-hmm. a lot of the folks. I didn't enjoy, personally, I didn't enjoy the coaches and stuff. Um, so I just, it wasn't my thing. And I just hadn't gotten into my own. And then when I went to college, I, like, got involved in everything. Joined every club, did everything. Got into, like, a fight club. Like You went into a fight club? Yeah. Well, the first rule of fight clubs, don't talk about fight club. Yeah, well, it was called the syndicate. And they needed a girl. Oof. I want, uh, they needed a girl to do it. Because to actually be a club at Reese University, you had to... What other, what other clubs did you join outside of Fight Club? Uh, I was, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. So I was like, a, I became a student. I could see you as a lawyer. Yeah, I wanted I to be that. a lawyer. All the, from 14 to like 21, that was yeah. the goal. And I, uh, so I was a student advocate. So I was like the student lawyer on campus mm-hmm. at Regents University in Denver. And then I became like on the judicial board. And then I ran for office and actually uh, was elected as the chief justice and did what do you do in something like that do you just like take on the fraternities and the sororities no this it was it was really we had some super serious cases at regis we had some that were confidential but they were they were like you know if kids there were sexual harassment cases Mm -hmm. they were all kinds of stuff and you would have a you know we actually had a former lawyer who was a judge for one of them and then we you know a, a one of the guys that was my student advocates when I was chief justice, he ended up being like the lawyer for that student. And I was a lawyer for another student. You can't actually talk as the, like you're not supposed to talk mm-hmm. as a student advocate. So you have to work really hard to basically get, you know, study the student handbook and then you get the kid really well studied up. And I really enjoyed the process of it. I really, I enjoyed understanding the rules. I actually enjoyed it. Something I realized that I was very anti-authority because I enjoyed pushing back on it. And that was actually catalyzed when I realized I didn't want to be a lawyer because I'd rather be a judge because I very much enjoyed being chief justice and being <laughs> the final arbiter of like, yeah, that's bullshit. And then deciding this. So you love power. Okay. No, no I mean, I actually, the, the, it was funny because the, the people, the staff of Regis University, I think they thought they would really like me because mm-hmm. I was very straight edge, you know, and then when I became the chief justice, I didn't exactly decide on the things that I think that exactly the way they wanted to. I often favored the students because the way the handbook was written was crap. And so there was a lot of loopholes. Such a judge thing to say. And yeah, so very. So very, wait, why didn't, so why didn't you go to the judicial route? So I tank, I'm bad at standardized tests and I tanked the LSAT and okay. um, my, I, I had a full so being a country girl and then going to Regis University, I had a full scholarship, like academic tuition, mm-hmm. everything. And so for my family, it was like winning the lottery. It was huge to go to a private Catholic Jesuit school. And um, when I had nearly 4.0 and double majored in economics and politics, minored in criminology, was you know involved in everything. I worked at the fitness center. I ma- was a manager at the fitness center. I did uh, was involved in you know every different club. I did bullying for a semester and you name it, I sort of did it and loved it and super involved in, in student activities and student government. So I was like, well, this is going to be hard. I have a great resume. I'm going to get into law school. And then when I realized that you have to basically have a great LSAT score mm-hmm. and that's all that matters. And I took the LSAT and I bombed it and I'm not good at standardized tests. And that was just it. And you were just like laws over judicial well, routes no, over. I, there, I had an interview with a law firm downtown. It's just mm-hmm. an intern. And I didn't, I, I didn't like the interview. I didn't like that. They, uh, they wanted me to be more funny and like joke around. And I just didn't like the vibe. And I just mm-hmm. thought this isn't, I don't even want to do this internship, yeah. you know? And so it wasn't as interested in it. And then when I didn't get in, I tanked the LSAT and I got into school. I got into, uh, Loyola New Orleans actually. And I got waitlisted at LSU, uh, and I got into Creighton and then I got into university of Wyoming and I just, I wasn't scholarship and I thought, do I really want to pay the money to do this? And I'm not hundred percent certain. I love this. Yeah. And my professor 
Um, his name was Terry Schmidt. He actually taught Condi Rice at DU, and he was awesome. And he sort of was my mentor and took me under his wing. And he thought I was really good at international relations. And he actually had pushed me in undergrad to intern at Parliament in the UK, as opposed to being a Hill rat in DC and interning on the Hill. So that's where I did my internship was at Parliament in London. And then I had visited London School of Economics when I was there, and I was pretty enamored by it. And so he, when I was struggling and not getting into law schools I wanted and take the LSAT, he was like, why don't you apply to London School of Economics? And I was like, man, if I don't get in, this is going to just be, because getting the rejection letters was mm. awful. And so it was, it was going to be a pretty hard mental blow if I didn't get in. And I remember writing the essay. It was just super easy. It flowed really well. And I was just like literally talking about being a country girl, knowing how to sew. And, and I remember some guy being like, you can, one of my friends was like, you can't tell London School of Economics, like you're like you like wheat and you know how to sew, like they're going to let you in with this shit. And I got in and I did international political economy and did, that's what I did my master's in. So where's your accent? Yeah. My accent? Yeah. I didn't pick it up. Your English accent. I can't. I'm, I would have totally picked it up. I you just, I would've you just, would've. I would have just ran with it. I'd have been like, I'm so sophisticated <laughs> after this. So how many years were you there? It was just the master's program, which is, okay. it's really it's really efficient from an economic perspective because it's just a, it's a full year. Mm -hmm. So you basically start in the fall and then you do, you go fall, you know, for a year and then you, you do your dissertation over the summer. But so it's a full year. It's, it's so stressful and awful though, because you study all year, you take these classes and then 100% of your grade is the exam. So Harry Potter, you know, they like write the written exams and stuff. No lie. It's 100% still handwritten and it's three hours. So each exam is three hours. And so you're literally just writing your armor off for three hours and mm -hmm. beyond stressful. And then that's 100% of your grade. It's just this, this exam questions and writing. Well, obviously hours. you probably did better on that than the LSATs, right? Yeah, I did. I mean, I've had, it was so hard. Um, but yeah, admittedly, and I'm not, I'm like a straight A student. So like failing is not an easy, is an easy thing for me. And I failed plenty. And I like that in your podcast and stuff, you talk about failure and propelling. And I would say like, I always tell people who are going through a really hard time that success is not, you know, it's not the, it, success isn't made from people who are just crushing it all the time. You know, it's typically we've, we've failed somewhere and we're picking ourselves up and we're busting you our ass. You just got to fail your way to the top. I mean, yeah. you're only going to go through adversity. And sometimes you got to lose quite a few battles to win the war. Yeah. Even if that means like seven or eight battles in a row. Trust me, we know all about that. I mean, there's, I mean, we've failed disproportionately more than we've ever succeeded by a long shot. And I mean, I think it's amazing that, you know, Wildcatters has even turned it into what it is today. There were so many things that we tried that just never worked or we weren't interested in. Um, so, so you went to London, uh, the School of Economics. What's next? What'd you do after that? Uh, well, then I, Came out of school in the recession. So mm -hmm. I think it's actually, I listen to a lot of people talking now about, or actually seeing you guys on, on LinkedIn and stuff and people without jobs. And it's a different, it's definitely a different market. I mean, my background is in economics. I'm a macroeconomist. So I think about the world in, in that way. And I came out of school in the heart of the recession. So I'm like, it, London School of Economics. And what's fascinating thing was my dad is drilling for oil in North Dakota. And so I've got like an oil poster in my room and of like where oil comes from. And so all my like British buddies and like European friends were like, oh man, she's, they called me like the oil chick because I was interested in it. Then did my dissertation. You really are a petro nerd, huh? I, I really am. Yeah. <laughs> and I did my dissertation on Chinese national oil companies and uh, they, and I had great friends. Like I, I loved, loved the learning environment there. But when I came out of school, I, it was the heart of the recession. So it's 2010, highest unemployment we've ever had, you know, sustained unemployment in the U.S. And 
you know, if you're applying for jobs, you guys are a little younger, so you weren't applying for jobs then, but it was hell. It was just, um, I think I got, I probably did 300 job applications. Mm -hmm. I got two interviews, one in interview that it was like in Oxford actually. And then, uh, a couple phone interviews with Vesta's wind energy. And I like when, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in renewables and stuff, but I have to be completely honest. Cause when they rejected me, they were like, we just don't think that your heart is in wind. And I was like, yeah, that's very true. It's not, <laughs> it's, it's probably not into wind. So that's an accurate assessment. And so I cold called, I bought a one-way ticket to DC and I cold mm -hmm. called every energy organization in DC because the American Petroleum Institute had like this like yeah. alphabetized list. Mm -hmm. And I just went down the list and cold called all of them, hammered on doors. And then I landed at this this small nonprofit called the Energy Policy Research Foundation, which was um, cute little little head of the townhouse in Georgetown. And my boss, Lou Pularisi, uh, the timing was just right. They needed somebody and I was hungry and he he recognized that I, you know, was really passionate knew what I was talking about. And they didn't have to brainwash deep. He would say like deep brainwash me to understand what energy was. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I just started working and he let me work on everything I wanted to. So I just started cutting my teeth on, I just researched it and worked hard. And so I was able to learn just an immense amount. So of was that more of like a research type role? Yeah, it was. So okay. I was like a research analyst and I cut my, I mean, did oil sands, did the Bakken, did everything that was like timely at the mm -hmm. time. And then became DC's like expert in, on us oil and gas production, which was fascinating because in 2010 and 2011, so I bought drilling info data and we were the only people in DC that had it spent a huge amount of money for a nonprofit to do it. But then we had this data. And so I would be able to go to like, you know, presentations at the center for strategic international studies or Brookings and EIA. And I love the energy information administration, but at the time they didn't have the, they didn't know what us production was in the shale patch. So we would go and we would present together and it would be me and like somebody at the head of EIA. And I'd be like, yeah, so Bakken production is, you know, up a few hundred thousand barrels a day. And they'd be like, no, it's not. And they're like, your data is about six months old. So it is, you know, and I can confirm this with Justin Kringstad with North Dakota Pipeline Authority. And so it honestly propelled them to sort of like get ahead mm -hmm. of this. And we were the only people in DC that were fo focusing on this. And I really realized that my boss, he did know because he's, he's in his late seventies now and he was looking at it and he always called it the North American Petroleum Renaissance, but he had a deep appreciation for how big a deal it was to see states, you know, going from nothing to a million barrels a day was huge and that what it would mean for the U.S. And so, I mean... I think what's amazing out of that, what you said is you, you're, you're, you're talking about the EIA, you're talking about the, the government, you're talking about energy policy, and you're talking about them not having visibility into literally how much production you're producing in the Bakken. Yeah. And their data is six months old and just how big of a deal it was really to have, you know, public data in the first place and being able to see this in real time. That's kind of mind blowing. We can easily go on a tangent about like, you know, making decisions off of bad data or lack of lack thereof, particularly from a government standpoint. I saw in the Marine Corps. I mean, you just make decisions oh, yeah. with the limited amount of data that you have. And sometimes those are not always the best decisions, but I mean, you just kind of make do with what you have. So how long were you there? I was there for five years. Five years. Yeah. It's been a long time there. It was a long time. And you, it, you know, you have to leave at that time or you stay. And yeah. I, I always tell people either love or hate DC. And I have to say, I love going back now, but it was never home for me. And it was just, uh, the weather is I, spring. It's like any, any place, probably like Houston, like spring and, and, and fall are great. Summer is brutal. Um, and I, I was really fortunate with where I worked and everything, but like, it wasn't home for me. My family was in Wyoming, Colorado. And so I wanted to get back, but five years, if you spend longer than five years and now, you know, folks that I've worked still have contact stuff in DC and they're like, yeah, it's, it's, it's good that you could left. you, could you do politics? I, 
it's funny. Only recently have I actually, only very, very recently have I actually seriously thought about it just because well, I, I just think, I just think your, your, your personality and your skill set. I think, um, I think you'd be cut out for it to go in and do a great job because you're so data driven. You're so analytical. You're able to dive really, really deep into that and be able to dissect things, understand what they mean. Whereas I think we have so many people that are in office that have absolutely no clue what the fuck's going on. Yeah, but that's the that's the problem is that yeah. most people that run for office like power and just want to be like, and then you realize when you get there that you can't do anything. So yeah. I think you have to have a, you know, anybody who runs for a big office has a massive ego. I don't have that big of an ego. And the only reason I would want to is because I just think that it is ludicrous. I mean, some of the, from an energy and economic perspective, um, how people really don't understand what's happening is... It, it drives me bananas. I mean, this podcast, I think I, I talked about it. Robert Norton was on the podcast last week and, and I talked about it with Ethan and I kind of was joking. I was like, my friends are going to listen to this podcast and be like, this is, Trish is getting really political. And I was like, I, I don't want it to be political, but this is an unprecedented time that we're in from an energy perspective. And yeah. I'm very confident in saying that, that I think this is the single biggest thing that's ever happened to the U.S. oil and gas sector is this administration. And it could very well change. You know, there could be a change, a, a pivot point, but thus far it is, and people just don't appreciate it. And so I don't feel bad about it in that I study the data. I understand the data. I understand the actual, you know, information. I listen to the earnings calls and I care, you know, deeply about like, understanding this stuff on a, on a holistic level. And when you understand it that way, I think it's mm -hmm. important to have like be giving, you know, at least having somebody opine and give some opinions from another perspective because it just like I research for a living and it's literally yeah. not out there on your major CNBC or Bloomberg. And that's why I really enjoy working with you guys. and want to do this is because I think that you have to have mm -hmm. smart people out there talking about stuff. And I believe in giving people, you know, access to information. So going back to your, this last role, so you spent five years there. You decided, hey, you know, I don't want to necessarily do this as my entire career. Where do you go next? Yeah, so I, I had basically, I think, tapped out, I thought, in my knowledge. Like I was, yeah. in terms of, as I love learning and I just couldn't, I didn't feel like I could learn much more. And my boss and I, um, I mean, he was great. I traveled the world. I was able to, you know, brief executives at Exxon and Statoil and, and had great exposure, found out that I was good at public speaking and thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, then, I mean, went to Indonesia and gave presentations and stuff and, and Imperial College in London. It was awesome. And then um, it was very hard to give that up. I was actually offered a lot of jobs in Houston during that time period, which was great for me because I didn't know. I did like, you know, when you apply to 300 jobs and then you're rejected and I have to say this, the Wood McKenzie, like immediately rejected by IHS within 24 hours, IHS and Wood McKenzie just immediately rejected my resumes. And it's funny because I've been in meetings with the CEO of Wood McKenzie and I had to like tell him like after he'd seen me speak and stuff and we were, you know, bantering and stuff, he'd be like, I think we might have made a mistake with that one. I was like, oh, good, good. Maybe you made a mistake on missing that resume. But it's also, it made me realize how flawed the system is of yeah. resumes. Like they- It's it's mostly automated systems to where if you do, literally don't meet the requirements in the system in the first place, you're automatically, it never sees human eyes. Yes, exactly. Nine times so you can't meet, and, and yeah. everyone who's ever like, you know, I've never gotten a- I've never gotten a client probably really from them not meeting me or seeing me be able to speak. In every interview I've ever done, they're always like, man, it's just way different actually meeting you and talking to you and, and understanding that you know this stuff. So it's a, 
like coming out, you know, when I was in at the Energy Policy Research Foundation, when I first started getting the job offers, it was because we would go brief like Kinder Morgan or something. And then, you know, I do four hour briefing for a bunch of people at Kinder Morgan. And then they would be like, hey, are you interested in this? And my boss would be like, crap, every time we do something, you know, you get a job offer. But it was great because, you know, he had to start paying me a little more competitively. And um, it was a huge, uh, you know, nice ego boost for me. But I ultimately chose to stay because I loved what I loved what I was doing so much. And then you know, sort of just hit a wall from it and realized that we were kind of doing consulting there in mm-hmm. a way because people were calling on stuff and we didn't really do it straight up, but we were asked a lot to do consulting as a nonprofit. We weren't really supposed to be doing that. So we'd do it on the side or whatever. And I realized that that's maybe what I should be doing. And I'm entrepreneurial by nature. I mean, PetroNerds is going to be one of 20 businesses. We talk about businesses all the time. Yeah. I have not shy of ideas on businesses. Um, so it, it was kind of natural to start thinking. And I believe it was there that my my former colleague and I were called, they were like, well, what are you guys? My old boss would be like, Petronerds. And I was like, that is, that's fucking awesome. Um, so what year was the genesis of Petronerds? You know, this gets into a little, uh, some territory of, uh, of my business director with Petronerds, but a lot has changed in my yeah. in the past year. So we're happy to go into it. But I started the company uh, with my former colleague at the Energy Policy Research Foundation in, I think we technically started the business in 2015, and he did some, he used it as kind of a consulting vehicle Mm -hmm. to just work with with our former employer, and then we started it full-time, and I left, I quit my job in December 2015, started full-time in in 2016, and that was, so that was, so 2016 is the heart, like, heart of the downturn, everything slipping, and I'm, like, in my new apartment in Denver, and I'm just, like, cold-calling people, and, you know, trying to get contracts. My first contract was actually with Joe Kennedy of, uh, which is Bobby Kennedy's son, uh, with citizens energy. And he just, um, oh, really awesome guy. Don't I, ride in planes with those guys. What? Don't ride in planes with those guys. <laughs> He's, uh, I mean, that's a great example of something like, I don't know if on a, on a political spectrum that we would agree on everything, but he's, I like, really like him as a person and, uh, and I really like the way he said what Citizens Energy Mm -hmm. does and how they view energy and how they just understand it and great person to talk to. And he, he had known some people that in my, uh, that was on our board as well and put me in contact with them. And they just, they just did I did a one-off project with them, helping them understand the market. And it was stuff like that, just like, you know, as you guys know, like just grinding and trying to get, you know, just put food on the table and and pay the bills. That was basically what it was like for a few years. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Datagration. Whether an operator is striving to meet production quotas in a new asset or managing a mature field with declining production, the challenge can be the same. Oil and gas companies want to optimize production from each well to help attain profitability goals and return on investment. The improved oil recovery optimization solutions native to Datagration's PetroVisor platform help operators identify underperforming wells, choose the best secondary oil recovery techniques, optimize artificial lift programs and equipment, check surface facilities, health, and maximize uptime. This unified platform helps automate business processes improves collaboration among teams and provides complete data visibility through all operational functions. Methods such as virtual flow metering, pattern recognition, and events detection help reduce the risk of underperformance and well failure and forecast well problems. Together, these workflows help customers identify and solve well performance issues that affect production across the field. To learn more, just go to datagration.com. No, I mean those those years really make you appreciate the the success that comes a little bit later when you're not. I mean, you're still like I feel like we're still. I'm feel like I'm grinding harder than ever, but it's not really in the same. 
the anxiety I think that we yeah. had in the early days of like, how are we going to make things work? Or maybe the, I think when I have the most anxiety or maybe, you know, start feeling depressed or something, if there's a lack of a roadmap, right. To yep. a light at the end of the tunnel. And I think in those early days, it's very easy to, uh, yeah, you just gotta, the, the best way I think to, to do that is instead of, you know, running away from those fears and being like, ah, it's just a push through, grind it out 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365. I've lived that. I haven't taken a vacation eight years. Oh, I haven't either. And I don't even know what the word is. The fear of like, and people are always like, you say this, Jake, actually, you need to have more fun and stuff. It's, there's also like the, that fear component that does drive you, you know, it's like, or that if I have fun, somebody else out there is working harder than me. There's 24 hours in a day. If I'm not using every one of them very, very efficiently, at least this is the way that I think to where for me, every second of my day, I feel like I have to like account for. And if I have downtime to kind of decompress and release, I feel like I need to spend that learning and perfecting my craft in some way. You're also a little younger. So Jake is actually a few years younger than me and actually has a, has a wife and children. So you're, you're busier. I got a lot more gray hair than you though. Um, yeah, I think I'm, I've aged pretty, I feel like I've aged pretty You've aged well. Yeah. yeah thank yeah. you. I, you're, but you have a wife and kids, so you have to balance like. You, Which is, we could easily go on a tangent on that. That's extremely, especially being in this line of business, it's extremely difficult to find what is that balance if ever. And I, I really, I take that in waves. I don't think it's, it's one way or the other. There's just certain times where my requirements and my attention has to be shifted on something. But I think of the end goal of being able to hopefully be able to spend a lot more time with my kids eventually is a, a little bit of a sacrifice that I'm willing to make. And that's kind of the ties back to entrepreneurship. It's like you're always kind of chasing you know, that carrot of, but you know, an exit or something it's like that, that. And that's what I think you guys, you guys do a pretty good job in your podcast of, of characterizing like why people are an entrepreneur, like why you do it on your own. And I think if you're personally, I think you're either wired for you or not. It's like, a, you know, I don't really believe in leadership programs or I hate that when they're titled a leadership program because you can finally, they're diamond in the rough. They were already, they already had the capabilities and then you just like, you know, cleaned them up and, and made it. But you have to be born with those certain characteristics. And I think a lot of people do think I'm, I'm uh, you know, a little domineering and intense. And that's honestly, I have far more, I think, male leader, typical male leadership characteristics, just because it's how I'm wired and how I think about stuff. And I literally am thinking about stuff 24 seven, not because Mm. it's, I enjoy it. Like, but it's, it's, I'm thinking to myself all the time and I do want to learn. And so like my job is, does it ever get exhausting? Yeah. I mean, I need to you ever drive yourself crazy. Like, Cause I'm, I'm asking, for, I'm asking because I do the same thing, right? I'm wired the exact same way to where it's so difficult for me to turn it off yes. and to be present. And, um, let's just say for example, right now I've got, um, I've got a bunch of family that are staying with us for the next week while they're in town. I have a very difficult time coming home, turning off work and being present in these conversations that, you know, it's a lot of small talk and stuff like that, but my mind is, is constantly going and I drive myself crazy. Let me well, tell you, there's, there's a certain times where I'm just like, I like my strength is my weakness in a way to where it's just like, man, I wish sometimes I could just like relax. I wish I could have fun, you know? And I know you're the exact same way. That's why I'm asking, like, does it, do you ever drive yourself crazy being like that? Cause well, I, know, you, I know what the answer is for me. Like, I, least, I love it and I hate it at the same time. You at least have a colleague. And I think yeah. that's, what's the harder, you know, since, so Petronance has, we, there's been changes within Petronance and then my life changed, 
you know, over the COVID with everyone, I had a part-time job with Antutes um, Exploration, got yeah. that job, was a manager for strategy and analytics for them, and then lost that part-time job and did a lot of really cool work there and lost that. And that, that I have to say was a really big catalyst for me in terms of, um, I, I enjoyed, was the first time I'd ever worked for an operator and I, having colleagues and everything. I enjoyed all those things. I did not enjoy the insecurity. And I have to say it's, it's even now when people, I've had very interesting job offers and turned them down because I don't want that insecurity and I am wired. I, I don't do well with authority. Um, and I challenge it typically not because I need to be the smartest person in the room, but because if it's not being done right, I just want to go fix it. No. And I want to study the solution and fix it. And it's like, okay, why can't we just do I'm, that? I'm the same way, which is why I think that more than anything was the number one reason. Well, that, and I wanted to make more money than the Marine Corps could pay me, uh, which was practically nothing, but just, I was constantly seeing issues with the way that leadership was doing things and really the Marine Corps as a whole. And I was like, there's a very easy solution to this, 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 and this, why don't we do it? And they're like, listen, you're a corporal. Nobody's <laughs> going to listen to you. Right. And so it was one of those things where it was like, well, then you just stop caring. And once you stop caring, you know, you just need to get out. Right. But that's what was great on that podcast you did, because I think it was the question they were trying to joke with you guys, which I, we do have to go back to this because I think they were like, what's a digital wildcatter? And Colin was trying to explain what a, a digital wildcatter was. Who asked that? Um, I think it was Mark. And oh, okay. Yeah, it was like, or because isn't isn't Mark and then the other guy is the comedian, right? Uh, yeah, Harrison. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. so it was it was funny because I didn't think it was it was it was kind of dry and it yeah. didn't seem like Colin was getting it and was it was just kind of hilarious how he was like it's a th it's this you know and I was <laughs> like okay if you if you grew up around the business you know yeah. what a wildcatter is if you don't I guess you wouldn't know and a lot of people that probably listen to podcasts aren't strictly oil and gas so it's more techie so yeah. I was just thinking that was interesting but when I was listening to you talk about on the marine side I think they had asked you like well that that doesn't fit your profile your mo from what they know of you and for me like when I I met you and you were talking about the marine stuff and we were talking about pentagon stuff i don't know it does actually because your work ethic and like how you see and view the world and and i personally i really enjoy working with um the people i've worked with in the government are just mm -hmm. awesome and their commitment and dedication and it's just huge it's it's over the top and the people that i've been exposed to and everything i have an immense amount of respect for and i would love to actually you know spend more time you know studying and learning on that on that side because i i think they're just it's hard to work within the government, but there's a lot, mm -hmm. there's a lot of good that's done. Um, and yes, you can't make, you can't make big changes and stuff, but it's important that, you know, everybody sort of plays a part. So I kind of get it. Um, and I can also guess, get the, like the pushback side, but for me, like the entrepreneurial thing is more like it's, it's doing it on your own. Cause, um, it's never been about a resume for me. It's never been about, it's just really no. what drives me and what I want to do. And, you know, I think there's a perfect Venn diagram of being able to do what you love and make money with it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, um, I thoroughly believe that you can always, if you're the hardest working person, you don't have to be the smartest. And I don't think I'm the smartest at everything, but I know I can outwork most people. And I know I can outstudy any situation. And if you're willing to study stuff, you can find solutions where other people, you know, see roadblocks and obstacles. And I think, I think in your podcast does such a great job of, of, showcasing the value chain of crude oil and, and energy and just like, and tech. And there are so many, I listen to it and just have like 80 different business ideas of things to put together. There's and no shortage of, of problems to solve in this exactly, industry. There, there's no shortage of problems to solve. So, I mean, that's just like, that's the stuff that gets me excited. So turning, but to back to your question of like being able to turn it off, I have a bit of a different life in that I'm, I'm single and I have a German shepherd. So, you know, I 
turn it off at, you know, when I sit down at night at like 11 o'clock at night and I turn it off for like an hour or two and then I turn it back on when I roll out of bed in the morning. Yeah. Um, and I do, I veg and take time, but I have not honestly had a vacation since like my mini honeymoon and that was a long time ago. And yeah. so that, that was years ago and that was only a couple of days. I feel like it was so obviously, you know, anybody who's, who's, who's paid attention to us or knows us, I've been uh, crippled since like November, December timeframe, blew up my knee in a, in a jujitsu tournament. And so I think jujitsu actually really helped me. I mean, we have to work jujitsu into every single episode <laughs> in this podcast, right? So uh, I think that helped me being able to turn it off because whenever, you know, your, your, your heart rate's at, you know, 200 beats a minute and somebody's trying to choke you out, you can't really think about work. And I realized being injured and not being able to, to get that. I started to, to find myself kind of my, my brain was going a little bit haywire and I felt more ADD than normal and I felt more on edge than normal because I'm on all the time, you know, and I don't have that hour or two to be able to to decompress and like turn it off a little bit, which I mean, we can go crazy with this conversation, um, which really leads me to like, I guess like my, my fear that my, my family has is for me on the entrepreneurial journey that perhaps at the rate that I go, Maybe I'm not, maybe I burn the candle from both ends and I'm not setting myself up for longevity, literally health wise. Um, you know, Colin made a, made a remark the other day when, when some people were in here that it's remarkable how quickly my hair went from being purely brown to like half gray in like a year and a half, just through like the stress and stuff. And I see, I've seen people and, and, and so literally I've had, I've had a stomach issue for eight years, I didn't get it diagnosed until four months ago of it just being extreme, extreme anxiety of involuntary muscles squeezing in my stomach, creating ulcers, which created a myriad of issues throughout my digestive system. So literally stress and the nature of what I do was physically putting me in the ER multiple times a year and nobody could figure out what was wrong with me. I think this is a whole separate therapy podcast. Yes, this is a therapy. This, this Yeah. You're listening to the therapy podcast on Digital Loudcatters. No, but I like having, I like going a little bit deeper here because I just feel like you and I are kind of wired a lot the same in that and just kind of thinking about from an entrepreneurial perspective. The balance? The well, balance, you guys yeah. talk about, you talk about when you interview people a lot too. I always think it's like a, the work-life balance, which I think it was, uh, what was that? It was Tesseract or, or not Tess. Uh, Transect? Transect, sorry. Yeah, Tesseract yeah. is a um, fictional yeah. thing that's in both a book Wrinkle in Time and also um, in the in Interstellar Mar and Marvel, like the Tesseract, you know. Oh, no, wait, no, that's not Interstellar. It was, like that was a, a Infinity Marvel. War. Yeah, yeah Marvel yeah, yeah, Comics. Yeah. So, yeah, sorry, Tesseract. that was a nerd, nerd side note. Um, yes, Intersect, they, you know, I think they were one of the first companies that were like, yeah, we really, you know, lean into the work life balance. And you can't do it for everyone. Like, you want it's it's how you're wired. And I have to say, like, I, um, like, I, do like to eat pretty well. I need to probably eat more. I drink over a pot of coffee a day. You guys do not have enough coffee here. Like I, I love coffee immensely. And We're looking I, out for your health. We're trying to let you to detox when um, you're in Houston. Love coffee. And I work out. I, I, the only times I skip a workout is when I'm traveling, but I, I like mm. to get a workout in. I like to hit the punching bag and I like to like, I'm just wired. Um, you get a mean punch on you? I, I think I do. I you mean, a mean punch. What? You want to hit yeah. my hand real quick? Let me see. Um, I definitely want, I, we need to, I need to like, we need to do the bags and stuff so I can like it. I haven't done it in a long time. Are you going to do jujitsu? I mean, I can. I mean. Have, have you ever done jujitsu? I did. Oh, when we started grappling in our fight club in college is when the girl guy dynamics got a little awkward. And 
because they just didn't know how to deal with it. But I had all these people with like, it was called the Integrated Martial Arts Syndicate. Mm -hmm. And I was actually training for track or for, yeah, it was training for track. I got a stress fracture in my foot. I always got injured, did this in high school too, and didn't end up doing it. But I was training and then I got this stress fracture, was in a boot for months in like freshman year. And so I joined this, this fight club and I was in this boot. And so I'm just punching. So my punches, I think, are actually legit. It was the kicks that were pretty weak. And now I just, uh, with the punching bag, which got ruined in the storm because the base was filled with water and now it's mm. all bubbled up and now I have to get a new one, which was terrible. Um, that was a casualty along with some of my pipes in the storm. But that I unleashing that for 45 minutes, that is the only similar high you get from running because like my heart rate goes to like 180 when I'm running. And running is, I'm pretty... I'm relatively thin, so it's, running is not a great idea. It burns a lot of calories, but it feels amazing. Um, and people say that it doesn't, but, like, it's that high afterward or, like, two miles in. Same thing with a punching bag. It's just an amazing, like, whole body mm -hmm. workout. And so, yes, I would love to get into grappling. Or Do you grit. feel like boxing allows you to, to work out some frustration? It it truly I never know that I might have it until I'm like really beating the crap out of it and I'm like okay that I feel a little better so <laughs> yeah I mean your basic frustrations but I really do think like working out's huge and I and the taking the little bit of time like I enjoy I love my family immensely my parent I'm super close to my parents I have two older sisters and their kids are awesome I don't have kids of my own um, and I'm single but like I really Trisha said she's single three times on this podcast oh she's trying to let you guys know all right We've been talking about doing a dating show for quite some time and maybe we'll make her the uh, digital wildcatters bachelorette and we'll get some of you, some of you eligible bachelors. We need to get a good mix. We need some geologists, some engineers, maybe a few pumpers in there and we'll see who can vie for, for Trisha's heart here. Who's Trisha, what are you looking for in a man? Are we looking for, so Trisha's pretty country, but she's also, you know, she's nerdy when she's not wearing jeans and boots or a dress. She's, she's usually in a, in a, uh, teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, <laughs> sweatshirt that she it's likes bad. to this wear. This is when Jake knows we FaceTime. Like yeah, we FaceTime <laughs> too much. So I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But no, but seriously, we'll find you. We'll find you love in the oil patch. Thank you. That sounds like a bad MTV <laughs> <laughs> reality show. <laughs> Funny story. Yes, we had CMT and a bunch of other reality shows reach out to us back in the day. Really? Yeah. I don't, I don't think we've actually, I don't know if we've ever told the story on the, on the mic before, but yeah, we, um, because we posted our YouTube videos of, Hey, here's us going and buying oil wells up in Oklahoma. Hey, here's us, you know, Hey, one of our wells went down. Let's do a workover on it. And they wanted to do a show that was like black gold, but like, Oh, like a rough They like wanted a, us to be like showing up in Lamborghinis and taking them out to the field and oh. living in mansions and then like having fights amongst each other. And you were like, this we were <laughs> like not a fit for that. And I'm like, you realize these are stripper wells, right? These things do like two barrels a day. We only got like a few of them. So yeah, we were uh, a major letdown for the the reality TV show. Yeah, but when you're um, you know, you're rolling on your yacht, they're gonna call you back again. They'll call us back. They'll call us back. Maybe we'll give them some drama then. Yeah. So back to this, the the life, the work life balance thing, and then I want to get, I I do want to talk a little about about oil markets and and pricing and just the everything that's going on right now. We're gonna Trisha rant. We should go on a on a trip rant, and you should jump in because you should say your opinion. You guys are you guys take a pretty holistic approach. I think you do a you guys do a really good job of. We try to be pragmatic. Um, well, Colin likes to rip on everybody, so he doesn't. He, really he hates everybody equally. Yeah. So, but I think you know we've already started putting out more content, really about uh, to broader energy. Really, I think it's it's important, and I think that we've really taken a look at, at what we've done, and I think there's a lot of responsibility that kind of comes with having this platform and this voice. Um, to really take a very pragmatic approach between 
um, you know, what does the future mix of energy look like? And I think it's going to be just that. It's not either or. It's 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 a little bit of everything. Yeah. Except right now, it's so crazy. And I think it's that, religious. Yeah, it's religious. And and I think I think the market is crazy for one. So it's like I know that Colin is is you know a Bitcoin fanboy and and into all that stuff, which. I love seeing him on, on TV. I love that my, my family sees him on Sky News and is like, I'm like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I, I know him. Uh, and I think that's awesome. But I think, you know, Tesla, Elon Musk, can, when he's moving the needle on the market by buying like he's buying into Bitcoin and then he tech tweets about like this stuff shouldn't even be legal. You know, yeah. this is we're getting way outstretched. Like valuations of the market, I think it was we are higher than we were in the dot-com bubble. And that every day I turn on the TV, every morning you turn on CNBC, there's a new celebrity SPAC that started. And I mean, literally when they're, every time they say SPAC, they say blank check company. And they're like, new celebrity blank check company. Mm -hmm. This is this is the dot-com bubble. Like this is the new dot-com bubble. And you have a- When does it burst? I, so t the timing, I mean, today you're, I don't know what it closed down, but the Dow was down handsomely. And I mean, the Fed chairs out, Powell's out there the last couple of days and testifying and is basically saying, hey, everything's fine. You know, we're really we're really committed to this and we want full full employment. We haven't dealt with this in 30 years where we've had, you know, we've had, you know, inflationary pressures and we have had this higher unemployment and the unemployment is different. It's not the same. So this gets back to like when I was job hunting. I couldn't get a secretary job at BP or Coors, like, because I, they didn't exist. And, and then people would say, well, you don't have enough, you don't, you're not qualified. And the job that I was turned down for in Oxford, somebody with 10 years of experience got that job from it and took an entry level position with 10 years of experience. And that would be like me taking a, a t it would be crazy. And, but yet people were doing that with, with a fraction of the pay. And so this is very different in that this is a service sector. This was self-induced from, we, we closed down the economy. And so this is largely oil and gas is a, and energy are a big factor in unemployment, but it's the service sector. So, you know, taking $2 trillion in a stimulus package and trying to throw it at a, a very, niche part of the service sector that, by the way, isn't going to fix itself unless you actually open it back up and you enable it to, to open back up. And you could be hurting in the same bill by forcing people to have 15, $15 minimum wage and forcing mm -hmm. the way restaurants actually pay people. And minimum wage is riddled with controversy with, with economists on whether or not it, it, it helps things. But from an economist's background, you can expect inflation with minimum wage. So we have expectations of inflation and it's real. I mean, you're seeing it in oil prices, you're seeing it in copper prices, you're seeing it in, uh, the, the demand for commodities for the pen, the so-called pent up demand that we're going to have for all the batteries that we're going to have to build and all this electrification, you know, that's already happening. And so, and you, they are called rarest minerals for a reason, not that I think we won't find more of them, but until we do, you know, and the price gets bit up, the costs are going to go up. And so all of this is, this is real. And it's amazing that we already have the inflation without some of it actually having, we haven't done anything to actually increase that demand yet. Lumber, we have inflation on because home buying is crazy and people are building and, and COVID kind of spurred all this and everybody went bananas. But Super low interest rates. I mean, when you can and get super you know, the super low interest. We refinance our house. We got, we like won the lottery with that. I mean, we lowered it dramatically. Yeah. I refinanced as well. You know. And, but the, I don't know, I guess the, the problem I have with it is that you have the you have a dovish Fed being super accommodative and saying we're going to continue to buy, buying bonds and we're going to continue to 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 help this market and yet unemployment numbers came in better than expected today so that's why the market dipped was because unemployment is better than expected and you're just saying I mean in theory the market wants a more uh, a more accommodative Fed and the 
Fed is saying we're going to be accommodative. But guess what? The market doesn't believe it because the Treasury yields are going up. And that's not how the Fed's supposed to work. The Fed is supposed to be signaling, and then the market sort of moves with it. And they're doing the opposite because their goal, their job is to target unemployment and interest rates and, and it, or unemployment and inflation. That's it. And when they broaden that mandate, and while it may be a worthy cause to try to broaden the type, who is unemployed and how that works, it's harder in practice. If you mm-hmm. study economics, it's, you know, getting everyone employed is really, really difficult. And actually, you know, we had a unique set of circumstances where we had 3.4% unemployment before COVID and we had very low inflation. And that's kind of like, if you study the Phillips curve, like that's the, the point on the Phillips curve, something that like Switzerland has been able to do, but no country since really hasn't been able to do it. And so we, we just haven't felt what inflation is like. And I think there's a reality now that we're setting ourselves up for some sticky unemployment still. It's not going to be major. I mean, we're we're edging that down, but we still have some sticky unemployment and we're going to have inflation. And I don't think a lot of us have felt inflation. We haven't in our lifetimes have really felt inflation and higher interest rates. And I think there are significant repercussions for that. Yeah. I think the, oh man, there's so much to unpack there. Yeah. Um, like you, like you said, the service sector has been absolutely decimated um, rather than issuing, I don't want to get too political, but rather than just saying, um, you know, Hey, here's some health guidelines, you know, coming in and absolutely telling people that they can't make a living and that businesses must shut down um, throughout all of this, I think was uh, kind of an awful way to, to handle that. Because if you're able to use any sort of pandemic as a way to, um, to shut anything down without any kind of repercussions from a government standpoint, I think it's, it's a, it sets a really bad precedent. And then at the I mean, same we, time, and we learned a lot, like yeah. it was, it, I mean, it, be we, fair we haven't really think. gone through this before. Yeah. Right. So and we're, and we're still learning. And the, th- the thing is that all of this, um, you know, $600 checks, $1,200 checks, whatever it is in terms of uh, stimulus. I mean, that's our own money. We realize that, right? We realize that we're issuing ourselves money now to pay back later at some later date. And you look at how much the, the deficit, man, just over the last like freaking eight years, it's just been ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Like you said, unemployment's awful. Um, it's people awful, s- but it's like, I want people to realize that. So when I came out, it was over 10% in 2010. Yeah. We are at, nobody thought we would be below. And I'm not d- saying it's a huge issue. I was one of the people that, you know, had my business to fall back on and revamped, you know, Petroners, which is another story, but, and retooled it. But I had lost my job. Lots of people were losing their jobs at the heart of COVID. But that unemployment is different than like, it was largely, it was oil and gas and it was largely like service sector and people flying and everything. Mm-hmm. That we're now, we should be probably technically under 6%. Nobody thought we would be even under 10% by December. No one thought we would have a vaccine and we would be under 10%. So the reason that we have these sort of inflation worries and expectations is because, you know, we have $2 trillion being thrown at kind of a, a, a narrow problem that needs to be addressed. It certainly needs to be addressed, but that, you know, throwing a big stimulus package in it with a bunch of pork may not be the best way to address it. And we may end up with a bigger deficit, which, you know, we have low interest rates, but the market's telling you now that that's not going to work, that the interest rates are going to have to rise, which isn't a bad thing either, because it means that if you're saving, you can go put your money in a stable asset like a CD and get one or 2% rate of return, as opposed to throwing your money into, you know, into a coin, into Dogecoin or something and hoping for a return. You know, I just don't necessarily think that like, that's the, you know, the rise of the retail investors and everything that's happening in the market is crazy. And it's not that you can do it if you want to trade and you want to do all that, but it is creating. It is fascinating. It's fascinating, but it's creating. 
it, it, low interest rates create asset bubbles because yeah. people are looking for a return. And yep. that's what's happening right now. And so for for the Fed to disregard the fact that they're not enabling, you know. So you're pretty bearish on uh, Tesla, huh? I'm not bearish necessarily on Tesla. I mean, yeah. I think he's done a remarkable job at what yeah. he's been able to put together. But the value of the company and what he actually, what Elon Musk's company produces in terms of actual cars and the output is mm. nowhere even close to that they, they cannot be reconciled. Yeah. So it close is close to conventional logic. And I think what it begs to question is we were talking to Mark Behorch, you know, he does a risk profile with us the other day. And we were talking about cryptocurrency. I think we're talking about Bitcoin. Um, and it's really, it goes back to what is something worth and something's worth whatever people are willing to true. pay for it. But what you've seen, like obviously with, with Tesla, it's completely divide, defying conventional logic, the way that you would value a business. And the thing is that so many of these retail investors are now so heavy and, and such large bag holders of, of Tesla that if the whole thing crashed, what would be the ripple effect of essentially, you know, a company that is now worth more than every other car company in the world combined was to completely tank and now be valued by conventional standards, what would be the, the ripple effect of that? Well, that's so like, that's a huge point. Like if the if the bubble bursts, Tesla will be affected. And I feel like yeah. that, that will be the spark of the bubble bursting is Tesla crashes. And the other thing is, is that with the, um, a lot of people don't realize is that we didn't, the catalyst for like the real inflation concerns were the, um, the Biden win and the, the, I, concept that we would have this big stimulus package. And then along with that has been the rise of every EV company. And I literally say in every one of my podcasts, but I always say you and I can start a company. And if we say we're starting an electric vehicle company, we could probably raise, we could probably raise 20 million or a or hundred million and we could put green on it or electric vehicle and we could do a SPAC and we could start it tomorrow. We could just be billionaires and walk away. That's what's happening every, every day when you turn on the market. So a lot of those aren't going to be real, but you do have way more. Uh, Tesla has way more competition than it did a while ago. And you literally have government incentives like pushing this now for all this electrification. And that is that's going to that's creating dislocation in itself. You have a lot of government regulations now that are out or executive orders that are written. And people think this is going to be really favored. Yet they don't know how exactly, um, but they just it, it looks really good. Right. The writings on the wall from the green side. And so that and low interest rates and negative interest rates, as, as Robert Norton and Colin have talked about in their podcasts, have like have fueled this. And that's a really big deal. And especially given that we in history, renewables, and I'm not ripping on renewables, but in history, the in terms of the actual, you know, percentage returns, they're in the single digits. And when the cost of these metals go up and these rare earth minerals go up, it's going to get even narrower. And so Tesla is extremely exposed from an inflationary standpoint on that side. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, still fascinating to watch, right? It definitely is. And I think the bubble does. I mean, it, we're, we're like you said, I mean, every every sign of a bubble is definitely here. And we're so far past it. And the question is, when do, when do things pop? Um, and I think we're kind of poised for not just a... Um, not just a recession, but potentially a depression, like we've like we've never seen before. Um, I think there's a, there's a lot of reasons we could probably talk about that forever. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you what what does energy or what or maybe let's just go not energy that's pretty broad. Let's just say oil and gas. What does the oil and gas industry look like twenty four months from now? Twenty four months. That's a really great question. Like twenty four months from now, I thought you were going to ask like twenty five years from now or something. No, twenty four months. Two years. Yeah. In many ways, I don't know if it looks 
as different um, as people think. I was listening to Diamondbacks call and just the other night, mm. and I was realizing, you know, they have reiterated what a lot of companies have to saying, we're not going to increase production, you know, even if prices go up. But they've also, they also were pretty clear about explaining, you know, we haven't had the level of consolidate. We had a massive run up, run up in consolidation and everything. But you have so many small operators still drilling. I mean, when you look at the rig count and you break down who's actually drilling the Permian Basin, look how many companies are one and two rig companies. Like, there are tons of them. Mm-hmm. And so those technically, I think a lot of analysts six months to 10 months ago, a year ago, said they shouldn't be drilling. They wouldn't be alive right now. And yet they are. And so when with this rapid rise in prices, it's giving everyone, all these small companies, another kind of saving grace. So I think the trajectory looks a little different than what people expected six months ago, that you wouldn't have any small guys. And I think if prices stay here, one, personally, I think prices are, this is too hot. This is not a balanced market. I have, I have been bullish on prices from you know, March of COVID and the collapse. And I really thought that $40 was kind of your base. I was very clear with clients and who I worked with and and publicly that we were going to hit or near 50 before the end of the year. I thought that was an easy target. We did that. The problem is we've sort of, and, and OPEC and the, and we're at what, the, 63 now, 64, somewhere 63. We've been yeah. hovering at 63 for two days. I don't know what it is at the moment, but then we have, and we've got the Saudis sort of have clouded the market a little bit right now. They have a million barrels a day that they cut last month, and they I think they're going to use it as a bargaining chip in this this next month's meeting. But you still have nearly eight million barrels a day of just OPEC cuts that are sitting on the sidelines. So you have to tell me like how is the market recovered? And I think we we will have pent up demand. Like people are going to start flying again when when with vaccinations. Mm-hmm. I mean that's very real, but it doesn't. Re- 63 WTI and nearly 67 Brent does not reflect reality today. And so then that's that's saying, well, it's trading froth and it's everything. So that if prices go up too hard too fast and then they correct, the market's gonna look worse than it does now. We're gonna have less we're gonna have more fragility in the oil and gas sector. And and I think from a 24-month standpoint, in the US side, if nothing changes, if if the Biden administration does not bend a little bit and they continue from what they've said in their executive orders and their moratoriums and everything, it's going to be it's going to be devastating for the U.S. oil and gas sector from a production and an ability to just do business standpoint. So, yes, federal land is is the worst hit. But I think you have to be really careful about private land and careful about you know, methane regulations and studies and everything that could go after private. And that's sage grouse. That's, you know, the spot, the, the, the lizard, that's in anything endangered species. And the way the climate change executive order is written that was on January 27th that was issued, it's just, it's very, very broad. It's extremely sweet, sweeping. It's very vast. And so it basically includes the ability to have some of that stuff in there. Mm-hmm. And I think you've got to talk to folks in D.C. and you have to spend some time and you have to understand it a little bit more. Um, and you can, I, it, people will think I, I sound a little crazier. or I'm, I'm prognosticating and I'm pretty damn confident that the writing's on the wall, that this is a very anti-oil and gas administration. And I think this, this uh, business and the Houston scene, the tech scene, everybody need to be very well prepared for that. And also need to educate people on what this is because it could have you know, big implications for our domestic production, also domestic energy prices, and it, particularly on natural gas prices and the grid and electricity, it's going to be very complicated. So if it continues to go on this trajectory, I think we have a decline in production and depends on where prices are, and we, we can have stress on that side. If we, you know, there's a little bending by the administration, I think it gets, you know, we can increase some confidence in the sector. Texas is going to do well no matter what. Haynesville is going to do well. You know, access to infrastructure, those things are all good. And then it really depends on how you navigate the macro and whether or not. I, I personally don't think 
the Saudis are going to let prices go below 50. Um, I don't think the Russians really want it higher than it is now, prices higher than it is now. So I think this is sort of, but we're getting a little too hot to handle. And I don't think that demand is supported at uh, much north of these prices. 100% agree. We'll yeah, see how it all plays that's out. You 100% agree. That's awesome. 100% uh, agree. Yeah. Colin would not agree. I trust you. <laughs> yeah. I trust you. You know this shit more than I do. So, I mean, this is the stuff that you study. This is the, the demand that you play in. So I have to say it's been great getting to actually peel back the onion that is Trisha Curtis. Like we said, guys, she is a young, strapping bachelorette. So if you want to apply for the bachelorette oil-filled edition, just so let me know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, uh, I mean, it's been fantastic getting to know you, especially over like the last six months. And, you know, we really only want to surround ourselves with, you know, just the best and the brightest. And I think you exemplify that. You're really good at what you do. You're brilliant. Um, and it's it's been a, you've been a great asset to the Wildcatter team uh, and with, with what you and Ethan are doing with the Petra Nerds podcast. Um, and so if anybody's listening and you need somebody who can really help you from, from macro or micro strategy standpoint, reach out to Trisha, you know, PetraNerds.com. Um, what's your email? Is that Trisha at PetraNerds.com? Yep. yep. Um, so you can reach out directly there. She's on LinkedIn. Um, you can, you know, slide in her DMs. Guys, you can slide in her DMs. Yep. <laughs> oh no! That, I didn't hear that part. Sorry, this muffling that. She's on. Uh, she's on Twitter too. Trisha yep. J. Coffee is coffee your maiden name, or no? Yeah, coffee's my maiden name. Okay, yep. no. Awesome. Yes, Curtis is my maiden name. Thank you. Curtis is your maiden. So where did coffee come from? What? Because I love coffee. Oh, you literally put coffee in your handle. Yes, Trisha gotcha. J. Coffee. Because I, if you know me, you my, know, like, my my grandmother remarried, and her last name's Coffee. So I thought really? that was your last name. Oh man, yeah. that's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Nope, it's coffee because no, I you drink, just love coffee. I gotcha. love coffee. Gotcha. Yeah. Quickest way to my heart is literally just lots of coffee. I have guys. to. I have an immense. I've really enjoyed getting to know you guys. Have a huge immense respect for you. Obviously, I've flown down here twice in the past two weeks for this. This um, is true. This yeah. is true. And You're getting they, them frequent flyer miles. Yeah, I'm getting those frequent flyer miles. And so, no, I, I respect you guys immensely. I, you know, I, I do strategy analysis work and I am very forward thinking and I know you guys are off to the races and uh, and we, you guys haven't had a, a, you know, a really intelligent young woman work with you either. So we're sort of, you do have women. But we have women. Yeah, you do have one, but not not a direct, not like major podcasting women. Yeah, not, and, not content creation. Yeah. yeah and yeah, on absolutely. the podcasting side, it's really kind of, there isn't any in energy. I didn't say it. I'm just saying there, uh, I'm just saying there isn't any, like listen to the podcast. I don't there. want to be canceled for talking, <laughs> anything, but you said it. So I'm going to agree with yeah, you. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm just no. saying like in, in the energy podcasting space, there isn't, I listen to, I try to listen no. to all of them. I listen yeah. to the ones in Oxford. I listen to, you know, the Platts ones, I listen to the future energy podcasts and there's some women on them, but like not, there aren't like leaders. You guys are, no. are really, you know, cutting edge and you guys, the younger folks doing digital podcast and the platform. I'm just saying in, in terms of like the energy space in a lot of places, they're just not like a lot of, there's definitely not a lot of young and there's not, There's not like a ton. I mean, there's, it's a male dominated industry, yep. right? I mean, it is changing. Uh, you're definitely seeing a lot more women uh, come into the industry and, and especially in positions of leadership and stuff. And so um, I'm excited. I'm excited for the future. I'm excited to see what kind of content we can create together. I'm excited to see Petra Nerds continue to thrive, both the business and the podcast. So I, uh, we're going to work on uh, convincing you to move to Houston. We're going to work on setting up this Bachelorette Oilfield edition. Guys. All right, Trisha. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Jake. Yeah.